the sun comes up, I think about you. The coffee cup, I think about you. I want you so, it's like I'm losing my mind. So that's how the album, Losing My Mind, A Disco Fever Dream, opens. It certainly feels like the world is in a fever dream right now. It mashes up the lyrical beauty of Stephen Sondheim with the syncopated bass lines, strings, horns, electric piano, synthesizers, and electric guitars that define disco. Two of the collaborators behind this project are Joshua Hink and Scott Wasserman. Joshua is more than a triple threat as he has proficiency in piano and trumpet. He is a singer and actor, appearing in such Sondheim works as Gypsy, Into the Woods, and Sweeney Todd. He's also done stilt work and hand puppetry, or what I call a Saturday night. Scott, <laughs> Scott Wasserman, per his website, is an orchestrator, electronic music designer, and podcaster. He also holds a BFA in music composition from Carnegie Mellon and has worked on a wide range of projects, such as the TV show Fosse Verdon and the film The Greatest Showman. He's also helped Broadway in many different roles. Some productions include the 2012 revival of Annie, Escape to Margaritaville, The Great Comet, and Hamilton. I wish I'd heard of any of those productions. <laughs> Be that as it may, they join me now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Kyle. Hopefully that was an, an appropriate intro here for you. Um, but I want to start where we a lot of times start on this show is what your first introduction to Sondheim even was. Uh, Joshua, why don't you start first? Absolutely. So it's kind of a two-parter. When I was in middle school, the high school that I would eventually go to was doing a production of Into the Woods. And my sister was playing flute in the pit. And I had a lot of friends in that production. And I went and saw it. And then we had the VHS of their production that I would basically burn through after seeing it. And that introduction and love that I had of seeing all of these works kind of melded together, you know, being in middle school, you're like, oh my goodness, there's all these fairy tale. I know all these stories. And now the way they're coming together is just such an exciting blend. And it just blew my mind as a young middle schooler who was obsessed with theater. And that would have probably been the version where they only do act one, right? Or did they do act two? They did both acts. Oh. And wow. I, know, I know this for sure because my brother was like walking out of the building and ran into my sister who was like, where are you going? He's like, isn't it done? And I was like, no, no, <laughs> there's still an act two. And a couple of years later, I went to a theater camp and the theme for that camp was Sondheim. I did not know, you know, signing up for this. Mm -hmm. You know, the structure that they ran this program in was we would do an opening number, and that year it was putting it together, and uh, they would do a closing number with everybody, and that was Children Will Listen. And then we would create our own little skits off of note cards. And I believe the it was like split into small groups, and our small group made some story about a married couple that was having trouble with their children when they were out shopping or something like that. Hmm. And the instructors picked, it's the little things you do together. 
So I'm in maybe like eighth or ninth grade being exposed to all of these things. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was that was my introduction. And how about yours, Scott? So I have kind of a similar story. Uh, it's also related to Into the Woods. I remember watching with my family the recorded Broadway production of Into the Woods with Bernadette Peters and Chip Zion and Joanna Gleason. And I remember we had a VHS recording of it that we taped from PBS probably, uh, and watched that over and over and over again. I was probably in maybe fifth or sixth grade at the time. And then I also did a summer theater camp and the production that summer was Into the Woods and I played Cinderella's Prince. I did not play the wolf. We had enough students that those roles were separated. (laughs) So just Cinderella's Prince. And I also remember that a lot of us got in trouble with the director because we had been watching that videotaped uh, version Mm. of the Broadway production so much that we weren't acting. We were just mimicking the performances that those actors did. Same exact line delivery, same inflection, everything. And they were like, that's not how acting works, guys. You need to do it yourselves. (laughs) So that was my first introduction to Sondheim. But I was pretty obsessed with Into the Woods. And then shortly after that, Sunday in the Park with George and Sweeney Todd. Were you both the type that were like collecting cast albums and stuff like that when growing up as well? Oh, yes, absolutely. It was Mm -hmm. usually I mean, I don't know if I should say this, but this is, you know, we're past Napster and all of those, (laughs) those times. Um, But I would go to the library and check out as many as I could. And then I would burn them to iTunes. Mm hmm. And just keep I have the FBI on the other line right now. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Uh, my my parents were very much into musical theater as well, so I, I would get a lot of the cast albums passed down to me through them, and we'd listen to them in car rides and things, so so it was in our family. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, just from us talking here just briefly right now, I'm just curious, when did you know that like musical theater, or at least creation of music, acting, that sort of thing, when did you know that was something that you wanted to pursue full-time? I was seven years old, and I... <laughs> I went up to my parents and I was like, I want to be an actor. How do I do it? And they're like, <laughs> oh, well, like you need an agent. And I was like, okay. Yeah. So Step I, one. Yeah. So I grabbed the yellow pages and I started calling any agent I could find. Of course, like I'm seven. So these are real estate agents and you know, uh, that's amazing and one agreed to be my agent it was great <laughs> i wish that's how this story ended but um yeah so i was probably seven i i knew that i loved theater watching theater performing theater uh, i was also a pianist growing up and i don't think i really thought seriously about what career i wanted until probably into high school uh and i realized in high school that i was more interested in learning about how things got made behind the scenes than being the one on stage. So that's why I decided to pursue music and specifically music composition. And in college, I learned uh, orchestration along with Mm. composition. And that turned into my true passion in terms of what I want to do in theater. So, So it kind of evolved, you know, as I grew up. Just because we're on that topic, are there any orchestrators that are like at the top of your list that you love a lot? Oh, yes. Um, Obviously, I was heavily influenced by Jonathan Tunick and his work in Sondheim's uh, uh, canon and also Michael Starobin. Um, And Michael Starobin was one of the first orchestrators that I worked with when I moved to New York. Uh, My first Broadway show was Leap of Faith, and Michael Starobin was Mm -hmm. one of the orchestrators on that production. 
and getting to work side by side with him, knowing what he's done for both Sondheim's works and just musical theater in general. He was uh, kind of a giant to be (laughs) sitting next to me throughout that process. Um, But I also uh, have deep love and respect for Alex Lacamoire, having worked with him on a bunch of projects, uh, and also Christopher Yonke and uh, John Clancy, who are both mentors of mine as well. So then where does this love of disco come from for the both of you? <laughs> I, I, I fear that, and I, I don't mean this as a pejorative, it's that I find like disco is sometimes even looked on even worse than musical theater is sometimes, even though I love, love, love musical theater. Uh, sometimes the outside world doesn't have that, that same love. So where does the disco love come from? I mean, I will say as a gay man, my... My love of disco probably comes from going out the first time that you could be in a place where everyone was accepting of you, Mm -hmm. Um, going out to gay bars and really like it's such celebratory music and so fun that that joy is something that is so intoxicating to me. That's kind of where my love comes from. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it not true that like disco clubs back in the day part of the reason why disco was even uh, a big movement was because lgbtq people did not feel comfortable going to regular clubs they kind of made their own uh, i don't know culture kind of thrive in in those disco uh, disco clubs absolutely it was a complete like counterculture response um to the music going on of the day really has its roots uh in the black community and the trans community like all of mm-hmm. these individuals need to be lifted up really and honored with the creation of what we know disco is today Mm -hmm. how about you scott you know i've grown to love and respect disco much more through the process of researching music for this album and working on these arrangements you know i i had a an exposure to disco when I was young because my mom's a big disco fan and she would listen to a lot of disco records when I was growing up. Um, But it was never music that I consumed for myself. I love the heightened production value in disco and it's very much in the same vein as musical theater. When you listen to those uh, big flashy cast albums with the big orchestras, you get those same kinds of sounds in a lot of disco, but then you also get the genres of disco that veer more into funk. You know, my mom was a big fan of parliament funkadelic and that has like kind of disco funk vibes going on. So getting to hear the musicianship involved in those kinds of recordings is really exciting for me and breaking it down into what components make a disco groove work and what makes it feel tight and how you have the strings incorporated into the rhythm section and all of that. Um, and then it's also fun to think about the the death of disco being a uh, rebellion against that heightened production value in the music and you got into things like punch or sorry punch uh, i was gonna say punk and garage rock and all of that mm-hmm. like being the antithesis to that big disco sound so i think the 
way that disco evolved and then disappeared from the popular music of the time is really a fascinating journey in like the history of popular music. I don't know if this is at all possible. Is there a kind of a brief way or explanation you can give? Like, why does disco sound like disco? Like, what is it about it that makes it sound <laughs> like, like, oh, I don't know, this is a disco song that I'm listening to. I think it's a combination of the four on the floor beat from the drums. So you always have the kick drum hitting every quarter note of the bar. Right. And then a lot of times you have a bass that is providing a, like a leaping octave bass line. That's that boom, ding, 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 ding. you know, those are kind of the two elements that like are quintessentially disco in my mind. Um, and then just the instrumentation overall, having that uh, core rhythm section combined with strings and synthesizers. That's what, in my mind, evokes disco. We had a conversation when we sat down for this project, which was, <laughs> what instrumentation are we going to do? We, we didn't even go below having six string players. I think we may have started with saying, okay, well, we need to have, let, should we do eight? Should we, you know, there had to be yeah. doubling that happened. <laughs> That's your next project, Disco Quartet. See how it works. <laughs> See how it goes, uh, yeah. <laughs> Talking about the project itself, like where did this start? Like who is the first person to be like, we need to do a disco album about Stephen Sondheim's music? <laughs> that was me. Okay. Uh, so that is <laughs> what, what was that moment? Where were you when this idea popped into your head? So I was having drinks with a friend. If this is someone that sings on the album, shout out to Eileen Van Ho, sings the Miller's son and some other stuff. Mm, which is great. I love that Miller's son song. Yeah, so Thanks. so great. And Apparently, this is not something that everybody knows about, but a golden birthday when you are turning the age of the calendar date that you're born on. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we were talking and I was like, I want to do something to celebrate, you know, this time in my life and whatever. I don't know what that is. Like, maybe it's a this or I, uh, maybe it's a that or like, it's just a Sondheim show or I don't know, like mm -hmm. something that I love and enjoy. And I remember the moment I was at work the next day in a basement, just like in my office, like some some memory of like the Sweeney Todd disco in 1979 and the Ethel Merman mm -hmm. disco album, like the spirits of that, whatever you label that, kind of just put those thoughts in my head again. And I said, well, what if we do a Sondheim disco thing, event? And I probably texted Scott 30 seconds after that. <laughs> <laughs> And that's kind of where that started. And then we got together and sat down. And so, Scott, were you like immediately like, yeah, I'm on board with this thing? Or was it I need to know a bit more information <laughs> about what this is? <laughs> I, I was immediately on board only because Josh and I had worked together on a lot of other projects before this. And the 
presence of disco was always important in Joshua's creative canon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we, the first project we ever did together involved some straight up musical theater arrangements of things like material from Pippin, for instance. But then there would always be like a little bit of Shaka Khan thrown in and a medley, <laughs> you know, or the Mary Tyler Moore theme song, for instance. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I was not surprised when he approached me with the combination of Sondheim and disco together. I was also familiar with the Ethel Merman disco album, so I kind of had a sense in my mind of like what this could sound like. And then the next step was just figuring out the scope of the project because it could have been just like, let's take one standalone Sondheim song like No One Is Alone, for instance, and make a disco ballad version of it and then move on to another standalone Sondheim song. But it was more interesting to me to think about how we could create medleys and mashups and bring multiple disco styles into this and create a whole evening's worth of a concert out of this so so that was the exciting part of the project for me you know this kind of almost answers my next question here but uh, like was there ever a worry that combining musical theater and disco was just not going to work at all because you you mentioned the ethel merman disco album which i am also familiar with (laughs) but i i I don't know if i could necessarily think that that's a, a great production I hear it should be just right. saying songs and then they put like melodies and stuff underneath it. So it really wasn't conceived necessarily as that from the get go. Uh, how did you ensure that that was not what this project turned into? Yeah, it's it's I guess that's a good question of like, what does it mean for it to work? Um, <laughs> so the disco the disco album from Ethel Merman like you know you might not think it musically is satisfying but it's sure a conversation piece you know yes, it is, so, yeah. so I think our goal was to take the spirit of the Ethel, Ethel Merman disco album but make something that was also musically satisfying and clever and interesting and yeah I mean I don't think there really was a question of will this work once we started on it we just kind of jumped into the playground with the toys that we had and Mm -hmm. didn't really look back did you know which songs you wanted to have from from day one because as you kind of mentioned here already the the album does have certain songs that are basically just a song by itself Mm -hmm. but there's other ones that are mashups and melodies and, and and stuff so how did you go about actually just picking the songs you wanted to work with i have a notebook um that i actually or journal i don't know i got it from the cloisters Uh, Very pretty (laughs) Uh, that I the first entry is about this project and the entire notebook is ideas, thoughts, sketches um, specifically on this album. I think initially there were things we were like, okay, we really want. I know the Miller Son was one of the first ones we talked about of we really want to do this. We'll go other ones became these feel similar to me in this world now that we're set in disco how can we combine those 
Right. Like which songs had similar grooves to them already in Sondheim's shows, even if they weren't from the same show, which songs had similar lyrical themes, uh, which songs had harmonic structures that could work well together, uh, and then kind of figuring out how many songs we could mash up without it feeling like too much. Uh, and then which songs we wanted to just use as little like Easter eggs or like melodic themes that the band could play that the singers weren't necessarily singing um, I think a good example of this is like we have Lovely from A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum combined with bits of Loving You from Passion mm-hmm. uh, and then By the Sea, which is sort of like the same kind of vibe as Lovely about like here are the qualities that make me the perfect match for you, you know? Right. So like those types of ways to to gel the material together. And- and both of the characters are a bit diluted at the same time. So it all <laughs> yes. kind of works thematically, which is nice. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I was going to bring this up regardless, but because you just mentioned it, this is part of the thing that I've enjoyed by listening to the album. I've probably now listened like front to back about five times. Yeah. Um, in the few days that it's been, <laughs> been, been available. Some of my problems that I sometimes have with like mashup songs is that sometimes there's a word sure that matches, but thematically they don't really match, uh, sure. match up very well. I don't know. It's my big hang up. But for the, in this case, I thought that they all really kind of worked together super well. Like I was never like pulled out like, wait a second. Like that's completely thematically different. <laughs> there's, a, there's another one. Are you familiar? Barbara Streisand did this song where she mashed up pretty women from Sweeney Todd with the ladies who lunch from company. And it just <laughs> I, like every time that it switches over, I'm like, but they're, they're totally separate things. Like this is so right. weird to have these right. two songs be sung together. <laughs> Yeah, I think we we tried to make a conscious decision of of which songs to put together. So you you're reminded at once of the original context and the characters singing these songs, but you also have a little bit of suspended disbelief uh, in how they they fit together. But but hopefully mm-hmm. we didn't put anything together that was like so incongruous that it just doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> I'm kind of springing this question on you, but it just popped into my head when you were in the construction phase of this project. Were you thinking of this more as we're making a disco album out of Sondheim music? Or were you also thinking we're making almost like a mini musical, but with uh, disco beats in the background? Or was that ever Mm. a conversation you had? I think it was always on our mind that for this concert event that we did back in 2018, that it would have the feel of putting the vinyl down and letting it play. Mm from start to finish. So like there were specific things that we decided both in constructing a concert and also what an album would be, which was, you know, like let's limit how many ballads we have on this just to keep things moving. Um, You know, the opening sets up what the thing is going to be. And then we move into different grooves throughout the evening. Well, th- that's why I bring up that question, because what I thought was so interesting was you start off with losing my mind. Like there's that uh, um, you intro with that song, mm-hmm. uh, but then it goes into some other intros and stuff like that. But then you end the album with losing my mind, like kind of the full piece almost. Right. So there seemed to be a little bit intentionality behind like we're going to make sure we put songs in the right uh, place throughout this album. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of attention paid to the album order, both in the progression of the fever dream, if as right, it is, right, right. you know, like the 
the beginning of it kind of sets up combining the beats with the Sondheim material. And then as the album progresses, we get more into Sondheim's quote unquote weird stuff um, that is a (laughs) little more feverish and then wrap it up with the losing my mind and drive a person crazy mashup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would love to hear about more about some of the collaborators you had, like some of the singers that were on here, the musicians that were on here. How did you assemble these people? So the, musicians were they were a mix of people that worked with us on that first concert you know friends of ours um and people that we go to for a lot of projects that we work on together and also some new people that we brought in just for the recording of the album uh partly because uh it was very important to joshua and to myself to have a wide representation of people from the LGBTQ community uh, involved in the recording of the album. Uh, And then also just like a pretty wide mix of genders included on the album because a lot of times in New York especially, but I'm sure it's true everywhere, when you go to a recording studio, you see a lot of straight white guys. Um, So we wanted to make sure that wasn't the case for our makeup of the band and the singers. So so that uh, put together a really fantastic, uh, talented and eclectic group of musicians. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the singers, you know, the original concert was really sung just by Joshua and Eileen with three background singers, but it was exciting to expand for the album and include a total of 11 singers uh, drawing from people from the Broadway community, friends of ours, and people that we knew that we wanted to start working with. Um, Do you want to talk more about the singers, Joshua? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just what you were saying. You know, we did the concert and we almost sat down the next day to talk about what the album would look like. And I think one of the early conversations was, you know, wanting to expand that. So just as in the orchestra, we wanted it to be representative of disco music and the roots of disco, like that to be in the singers as well. If we're going to do a disco album, you know, we need to do our best to represent across in the orchestra, the singers. We have some really exciting collaborators that jumped on board when we approached them with the idea some of them very blindly not knowing either of us um (laughs) you know scott had worked with a few i'd worked with a few charity angel dawson who is currently in mrs doubtfire when that reopens um we had met in tokyo when she was out there as effie and dream girls and we met in a basement bar and she was involved in one of my first cabarets I put together that Scott also helped with the music for. Um, so some of the collaborators, we've known each other for a long time. Eileen was actually a part of my first New York cabaret. You know, it was a boring, hard, laborious day of auditions at Ripley Greer. And a friend of mine from a tour I was on had some friends and we all got in the room and just started singing through. This is such a like nerdy musical theater <laughs> actor thing to say but we got in the room and i was sitting at the piano and we were singing through each other's books and harmonizing sure. and kind of just like making music and then i was like okay let's let's put together a show and i wrote something for four of us and eileen was a part of that and now eileen and i have a like holiday show um that we've done for four years three or four years that p- all the proceeds from that go to benefit the trevor project um mm-hmm. which is an organization i really admire and love the work that they're doing i mean i think it's to the to the album's credit honestly to have those different voices that come on i think this is a good time to segue into 
what I've labeled favorite tracks. Um, <laughs> but this might be hard for the creators to be like, this is my favorite. But are there, are there standouts for you? I can talk about mine if you want, but are there standouts to you at all? <laughs> I think we'd love to hear yours and then we'll okay. chime in with... <laughs> Let me run this down. <laughs> Which children we love. So, so talking about those different voices, what I actually really enjoyed a lot for me, it's track 10. It's hot up here. Yes. Uh, actually, wait, what's the full title? It cuts off here for me. It's hot up here in this... City on in Fire. In this City on Fire. In this City on Fire, right. So you mash up those two songs. But it, it, is it drag queens or supposed to emulate drag queens in, in, in this song at all? Because it sounds like that to me 100%. And I love it. I'm totally there for it. It's hot up here. It's hot. And it's monotonous. I want my glasses. This is not my good profile. It's hot up here. I hate this dress. This tree is blocking my city on fire. City on fire. Rats in the grass and the lunatics are in the street. Why are they complaining? Definitely. Yeah. And we do have a drag queen on that track, along with Juwan and Deontay and yeah. I, I right. want to see like an actual production of that song in particular. I think it's that's, so great. That's always been my vision of like, if we did a music video for that song, it would be a bunch of drag queens in a tiny dressing room. That's too small for all of them. And they're competing right. for like trying to put on wigs and clothes and things and it's too hot. And yeah, that was my vision in like creating that arrangement. <laughs> Um, I really like the the in, entire opening, like opening doors, I think is great. Uh, the Unworthy of Your Love track, I'm a big fan of. I am unworthy of your love, darling, darling. Let me prove worthy of your love. I'll find a way to earn your love, wait and see. Uh, but the biggest shout out, well, sorry, the Miller Sun, I've already mentioned. I like that <laughs> one too. But the biggest shout I have actually is the No One Is Alone track. It is oh, wow. like, for me, my favorite. And and the reason is, I was trying to figure out why. Uh, this is again, me getting up on my soapbox maybe a little bit. I find that when most people adapt this song, they make it a solo piece when it's mm. not a solo piece in the production. And I think you need like different voices coming at for that theme of like the No One Is Alone to really, truly feel to resonate properly because i think sometimes people take that song to be like you're right no one is alone and i'm i can just do whatever i want but it's like no <laughs> the the message is like yeah stand up for what you want but there's always going to be someone there saying the opposite to you so you have to be ready for that no one is That's a really cool way of thinking about that. Yeah. Uh, which one did you have like the most, uh, but which ones did you have the most fun producing and creating? <laughs> I mean, artists are bizarre, dot, dot, dot. Uh, <laughs> that initially kind of planned for some samples. And 
that was kind of used in the concert as a breather. Everybody could get some water. And then, mm-hmm. you know, we had that transitioning into color and light um, out of the cacophony that simple is. And when we were recording it and actually, you know, we were in the recording studio and we had a click track that wasn't quite lining up at that moment. <laughs> um, and, you know, it transitions from so many, I'll say, exciting <laughs> moments. Right. right. Um, <laughs> but then you, you know, I was sitting in the booth while Scott was conducting or booth room of which audio is pumping into (laughs) the the Uh, room adjacent. Yeah. Yes. And listening to it all come together with the orchestra was really special. Was this being done in an actual like recording studio or is this just like an empty space you could find to do a recording? (laughs) (laughs) This was an actual recording studio. We recorded the, the band first, um, in two sessions, we'd recorded the strings separate from the rhythm section, uh, at reservoir studios in midtown. Uh, and then we recorded the vocals at uh, a studio owned by my friend Will Wells in Brooklyn. Um, and yeah, it's it's rare that you get to to go to an, into a studio with a full string section and and play this kind of music. So that was just a, a crazy single day. I'll point out one yeah. day to record all of this, uh, but such yeah, a special yeah. experience. Um, and I think my favorite track to arrange was probably it's hot up here in this city on fire and just mm-hmm. like picking which lines of dialogue would stick out um, and basing the whole vibe of it around like early nineties bitch tracks from drag Queens and, and going down a YouTube <laughs> rabbit hole listening to those. Um, but I think my favorite track overall on the album with just how it turned out is unworthy of your love um, yeah. for how joyous and celebratory it ends up being, especially at the end when the background vocalists come in with their riffs. I, I just, I love the, the positivity that comes out of that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brittany Price and Vishal Vaidya and Oni, they, <laughs> they kind of, we all were like, all right, can you just give us a little, um, you know, give us a little expression at the end of this. And they recorded all their stuff in one day as well. And, you know, all those riffs you hear are from probably one take of them just going, okay, here's my idea. And we just, you know, picked the best moments of, and it mm-hmm. was really quite fun. So then, sorry, how many, how many days was there of just recording? About three. Just three. Yeah, but yeah. three. Okay. So this is a pretty quick turnaround here then. <laughs> yeah. And then a ton of work done on the back end by our mixer, sure. uh, Will Hensley. He did such an incredible job working with us and, going through draft after draft of these mixes. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of back and forth over email and then finally got a day with him in his studio to listen through everything together and make final tweaks and hear how it all flowed as a, as a full mm-hmm. concept. And, and yeah, he's, he's a brilliant engineer. How has the reception been so far? Like, what are you hearing from people? Overall, it's been really positive. Um, I mean, I appreciate that people are reaching out with positive things to say more than negative, especially at yeah. this time. Um, we've had some wonderful reviews come out. And, you know, honestly, it feels great to have made something that is giving joy to other people. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm so excited by this album and I'm glad other people are enjoying it too. Yeah, I think uh, it's been really fun to see uh, the reactions similar to yours of like, you know, you go from, wow, Disco in Sondheim does this work to, 
I love this album. I don't know why it works, but I don't care. And, yeah. <laughs> and this feels great. We're getting tons of positive feedback from people on that regard. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's something that I actually tweeted out from my, my personal Twitter account the other day because I was listening to the mega mix that is like at the end of this, which I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the only place that Take Me to the World shows up is in the mega mix or does yes. it show up somewhere else? Okay. No, it's just in the mega mix. Yep. Okay. Because I love that song too and it works really well in that. But I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I know this is going to be controversial to some people listening, but I was like, less mega churches, more mega mixes. That's what I tweeted <laughs> out. Um, <laughs> that's how we should live our lives. That's awesome. Now, Sondheim obviously gave his blessing to this project, but was there any interaction you had with him during the making of this or even after it came out? Yeah. So when we were recreating the snippets from the original Broadway cast recordings that we wanted to use, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to sampling them because Sony asked for a large amount of money, um, you know, we have the, the bit at the beginning, that's the once upon a time. And we talked about this for a while about what, who should do this. And, you know, we did reach out to Sondheim. We sent a letter. He politely uh, declined to do that little cameo, but wished us well on the project. So that's a fun little story. And also, also at the yeah. beginning of the project or the process, you know, in order to get his blessing, we had sent him some demos. So he heard at least like my scratch demo recordings of these songs. Um, sure, sure. And at this point, we know that uh, the album has been sent to him by the record label. But we haven't gotten a response yet on, uh, on sure. whether he's listened <laughs> to it or not. But I'm sure he's a busy guy. <laughs> I mean, is there any desire, I mean, obviously not now while we're all in self-isolation, but is there a desire to actually perform this in any way or is the album going to be the album and that's the the end of it? I think there's a lot of possibility on the table. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it does feel a bit like a blank canvas. It can go in <laughs> a few directions from this point. Obviously, it's hard to plan anything in this time of uncertainty. And I think that they're open to seeing what happens and where we take it. There's a few yeah, ideas moving. I'd in. love to, I'd love to have the chance to have a performance of this with singers from the album, but also have a chance to perform it with new singers and guest singers. Mm. And I, I think there's a lot of opportunity to bring other people in on singing these arrangements and even for, you know, other places around the country, this, you know, it gets into some rights issues too, but if we could like have this as an option for other people to perform, in a concert mm. setting, that would be really fun. Um, or even do as like karaoke tracks or things. So yeah, we're talking about all of those. This this is going to come in two parts. Number one, the album "Losing My Mind: A Disco Fever Dream." Where can people get it right now? It is available at BroadwayRecords.com. Uh, it's also available on the iTunes Store. If you have a newer phone, that app might not be on your phone anymore. But it is on the iTunes Store. It's also available yeah. on Amazon, Tidal, Spotify. Anywhere Google music is sold. Yeah. And if people wanted to follow your exploits online, how can they do so? Yeah. So our Instagram for the album is Disco Fever Dream. Uh, that's our Instagram. And then our Twitter is Disco Sondheim. And from there, you'll be able to find kind of any of our social media. And then our individual so- socials, if you want to keep up on our projects other than this, uh, I'm at Joshua underscore Hink. That's h-i-n-c-k on instagram scott do you want to share your insta sure my instagram is at 
Swasserm, so S-W-A-S-S-E-R-M, or on Twitter at Scott Wasserman One. And then you do a podcast as well, right, Scott? I do, yes. I have a weekly podcast called Song Salad with my collaborator Shannon Deep. Every week, she and I take a random genre of music and a random topic in the form of a Wikipedia article, and we've mashed the two up into a song. So check that out. That's uh, songsaladpodcast.com. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day uh, to do this with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.